welcome. It's good to be back out for my monthly visit to Battery Park, and uh, I'm glad to be part of what's happening out here. Hey, let me add one more thing to uh, what uh, Nathan mentioned earlier, and that is missions trips. Did you mention missions trips? Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure I was paying attention. Um, if you've never been on a missions trip, man, we would love to have you do that. It's kind of one of our goals at Coastal that all of our members at some point in time go on a mission trip somewhere other than here. And I know there are three. Uh, one is actually to the state of Tennessee, but it's going to be to a Spanish-speaking population. So particularly if you have that particular skill, that would be really helpful, but you don't necessarily have to. It's also our least expensive trip this year, so uh, you'd be able to do that. And there are folders that came with a bulletin, so you can have all of them. One is to Puerto Rico. I have been on that trip. That's really a, a great opportunity. It, it's also a Spanish-speaking place, though it's, uh, it's part of the U.S. It is still uh, speak Spanish, but if you speak English, you're fine, because you walk into anywhere and say good morning, they just start speaking English to you. So you don't, you're not inhibited at all. That's a really cool ministry opportunity down there. And then we're going to Poland. Those are the three confirmed trips that I know of. And I know it's only February, and uh, but we got to start thinking about that, right? And if you're going to raise money to go on those trips, you kind of got to be thinking about that a little bit. So it's a great opportunity. I hope you will uh, consider taking advantage of one of those. And uh, participating in it, it'll be a really great thing because it's it's really important to us to reach our communities of course that's desperately important there are a lot of people that live right around us that need Jesus um, but there are a lot of people in other places in the world that need Christ also and so we want to uh, participate in that coastal gives 10 cents out of every dollar you give goes to missions and we go where we serve right we so the the even the one in Tennessee it's a family from Bolivia that we support at a children's uh, orphanage in Bolivia that's going to be there working with Spanish migrants. And so it's where we send our money, we send our people. And so uh, where you go, there will be people already have been ministered to through Coastal, okay? So let me take just a second and talk to you as we're heading into this discussion of the golden calf in Exodus 32. This is a really interesting passage of Scripture, right? It's... it's uh, well, we'll get into it, but I want to tell you a little bit about my background because I suspect if we were to take time to go around the room, which we don't have time, but we would probably find that everybody has had at least one, what, what I describe as a wilderness season in their life, right? I've had two of them distinctly that my wife and I have referred to as our wilderness times, times when we just weren't sure what, what was going on, which end was up. It was super frustrating. Uh, one of them was years and years ago, uh, we had anticipated that we would go to Australia as church planting missionaries, raised a boatload of money, like 80% or so, 85% of our support, and uh, we have a special needs son, and as it turns out, they wouldn't give us a visa, and it was just kind of like slam the door, and, and we didn't have any reason to question that when we first went into it. And so that door got slammed and we looked at a bunch of others and we went through several years of just really intense difficulty. That was probably 25 years ago. But God used that time to bring us to Virginia. And uh, so I took a pastorate over in Newport News, was there for about 10 years or so. Uh, yeah, something like that, about 10 years. And 
just knew our time was done there. God uh, made that clear to us, and so we resigned. We left that church, and I took a job working in construction because no other church was available at the time, or at least none that wanted me. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I spent almost five years working in construction until I began at Coastal seven years ago now. And uh, that was the worst I hated those five years. Now, I've met some great friends, some of which I still serve with. God taught me some incredibly important lessons during that time, but they were really hard, and I struggled with some things. So as I have studied Exodus 32, I have found myself resonating a little more with the children of Israel than I want to admit. So I wonder if maybe you'll do the same thing today. I would love to be the guy who, like, I want to be Moses in this story, right? But I'm afraid I'm not. Uh, and uh, so I hope that as you go through this, you'll be open with your own thinking about this to, to think, what, what is this like? And so I titled the sermon, If There's Anything We Learn From History, What's the Rest of That? It's that we never seem to learn anything from history, right? We go through these stories. We, we watch the children of Israel. And what's fascinating to me is this is one of the places in the Bible where in the New Testament they refer back to this and say, this was given to us as an example. So this isn't just a cool story. This isn't just even a heartbreaking story. This isn't just something to remember about some bunch of people way back when. This is a story that the New Testament picks up and says, don't be like this and here's why. And so this is very real to us. And so as I've put this sermon together, I've tried to think about it in terms of how does it look for me? How does it look for, for us as we work this out in, in practicality? So the first thing I want to talk about here is the nature of sin, okay? I know that's a little heavy, but I think that's what this is. So let me read for you the first 10 verses. You can follow along. They may be up here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, okay, sorry, let me interrupt. You know that in the last bunch of chapters, we looked at a bunch of chapters, we probably didn't look at all of them last week, but Moses had gone up on the mountain, and God is in the midst of giving instruction to Moses for the people of Israel. He went up, he spent a week uh, up on the mountain with some of the elders of Israel, and then he went further up the mountain, met with God for 40 days. So we're about seven weeks that he's been gone, right? When they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, a wise leader would have said, guys, it's been seven weeks. It isn't that long, right? But, but Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are the gods, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's in all caps. That's the name of the Lord as revealed to his people, their covenant God. So 
Aaron is kind of trying to direct their attention a little bit back to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, so he's still up on the mountain, Go down, for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and was sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. That's quite an offer, right? So Moses is on the mountain, unaware of what's happening. Joshua's a little further down, we'll find out here in a little bit. And uh, he's unaware, except he can hear all the shouting going on, all the carrying on. And so they, they go up the mountain to meet with God, and while they're gone, the people fall into sin. And the first piece of the sin that they uh, exhibit is their distrust of God. It's been seven weeks. Now, listen, I know the older you get, the faster time seems to go, right? Like seven weeks ago, good night. What was that, Christmas or something? It wasn't that long ago. Um, for kids, time goes more slowly because they don't have the frame of reference. But seven weeks is just not that long, except when you are just sitting there, right? When you're not doing anything, you're not going anywhere, and you don't know what's next. They didn't trust God to know what he's doing. They didn't trust God's timing. They were impatient. I wish those kinds of suggestions in Scripture weren't there. Because I am not customarily a very patient person. Um, it's just not in my nature. I, I, other people maybe don't know that. My wife is well aware of how impatient I can be. Um, I just, I don't like waiting. I want to know what's happening, what's going on, what are we doing? They made a commitment, a covenant commitment to serve God alone, right where they're standing, camping. And the blood that was shed and sprinkled to symbolize the cutting of that covenant had barely dried, it seems, and here they are doing their own thing, not trusting in the Lord they promised to trust in. Another part of this distrust is they got really uncomfortable with silence. Now, I was going to just be quiet after I said that for like 30 seconds just to see how much people would squirm. But I didn't think I could stand it, right? We don't like silence. Especially when it's silence in that I'm not in a worship service, and I don't feel like God is really speaking to me. It's Wednesday afternoon, maybe. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Or it's a protracted season of struggle and difficulty, and I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm having a few sleepless nights interspersed here and there, right? Because I just want to know what to do. And I don't have any answers, and I don't even feel like I have any communication. Here's what one writer said. The trouble is that, like the Israelites, we are tempted to be impatient. 
We get impatient for God to heal us or provide our needs. We get impatient for him to bring spiritual change. We get impatient for him to lead us out of the wilderness. But sometimes for our own benefit, God doesn't want to bring us out of the wilderness. Not yet, anyway. And if the wilderness is where God wants us right now, that's where we need to stay. Trusting his goodness, waiting for his timing. I hate the wilderness. I would say that I hope my wilderness seasons are over at 63, but I'm not convinced they are. There may be more yet that God has for us. The wilderness is the time we have to embrace quiet, and we don't like silence. That's why the TV's on in the background half the day, or the radio's on all the time when we're riding in a vehicle, or why there's just something. When it gets quiet, we wonder what's wrong. Sometimes God just wants us quiet, and we have a hard time trusting in those kind of events, right? So the part of the nature of their sin had to do with their distrust, and that's before they did anything. <laughs> Secondly, it was open disobedience. In the case of Aaron, it was doing what was popular instead of what was right. He made him a calf. Make us a god. He said, okay. And what did they make? What, what had just happened? I mean, months previous God had killed the cattle in Egypt. It was one of the plagues that God had done to demonstrate that he was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And the first thing they do when they get out of Egypt, the first chance they get, they make a calf to represent God. And so Aaron is trying to, to you know, spin this thing a little bit. He makes the calf, and he says, okay, now we're going to make an altar, and we're going to have a service of worship to the Lord who cannot be represented by an image. That's one of the things that God was in the process of saying, you can't do that. First, you must worship me only. Secondly, you cannot make an image. Why, do we not, why can we not make images of God? Because there isn't any one thing that adequately can represent who God is and how great he is. An image limits God. At the very least, it limits God. So they... They disobeyed. They lived in familiarity. They fell into old patterns of behavior. They had spiritual amnesia. Is Psalm 106 up here? Yeah. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome deeds by the Red Sea. In seven weeks, I might add, they forgot God. They forgot what God had done. It's really incredible how quickly we can fall back into our old familiar habits, right? Because they're, they just feel normal to us. And so when we're in the process of breaking into new ground and breaking into new habits and walking with God and seeing all of these things happen, we, we find ourselves disobeying the Lord because it's just easier to do what we did than it is to cut a new path. The third thing has to do with distortion, right? Verses, verses 5 and 6, these are your gods. When Aaron saw it, he built this altar, and he said, let's do this, and we're going to rise up, and we're going to worship. They broke that second commandment. 
And they demonstrated pride because they were worshiping God as they saw him. They wanted something to look at. We have, uh, we have a God who refuses to be contained in our imagination. And he asks us to just trust him. And it's hard. So we find things that we can hang on to, that we can trust in, that we can put our confidence in. We trust in our paycheck that comes every week. You know, we don't bow down and worship it, of course, but it can be very easy to get confident in that. It can be very easy to trust in the accolades of people to realize that, uh, man, everybody seems to love me. I mean, one of the teams tonight has the boyfriend of Taylor Swift playing, right? Can you name his team? Probably you can if you're a football fan. But it's fascinating to me how celebrity popularity, I mean, that is, it is a drug. It feels good to be appreciated, and we, we can begin to buy into those things and distort what's really true. And here's the thing. I think, to some degree, Aaron had good intentions. He was trying to get them to think about the Lord. But what is the sentence? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Sincerity is not the arbiter of truth. Truth is truth. It doesn't matter how sincere I am if I am not doing what's right. It is not the arbiter of truth. It is not the arbiter of right and wrong. I need to do what is the right thing. And they didn't. So they distrusted God. They were disobedient. They distorted the truth of God. And lastly, the last few verses talks about how they were deserving of judgment. God said to Moses, go down there. Those people have corrupted themselves. It's kind of a scary thing, right? They have sinned. They're stiff-necked. They have turned aside quickly from what I commanded them, what they promised they would do just less than two months ago. So that's the nature of sin and how, how easily we can find ourselves drifting into it. The second thing I have on there for you is the need of a mediator. Why do we need a mediator? Well, because God hates sin. Isn't that a scary thing? Verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to go down there and do something about this. But Moses implored the Lord. Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why does your wrath burn hot? That's just a scary thing. To imagine myself in a position where God's wrath was burning hot against me. When Moses eventually went down, what did he do? Broke the first set of tablets that he'd been given, right? That's, that's toward the end of this chapter. And he, he takes the tablets and he throws them on the ground and he breaks them into pieces, symbolically breaking the law that God had given him, symbolizing to the people, you have broken the law of God that you promised you would follow. Idolatry wasn't just uh, 
idolatry wasn't just what God told the Israelites not to do. It's what the Israelites told God they would never do. It wasn't just God's command. It was their promise. We, we, whatever the Lord says, we will do. Exodus 24, verse 3. Everything the Lord has said, we will do, including not looking at idols, not worshiping idols. Yet here they are. And they needed a mediator because God hates sin, his anger against sin, and it is just because God is perfectly holy. They needed a mediator because God's reputation is important. I love how Moses approaches this. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses' plea is based on the character of God. He's not trying to make it sound like the people didn't deserve what God was threatening against them. God's reputation is important. What will the Egyptians say if you do this? Aaron treated God's reputation as though it were just something frivolously unimportant. In fact, when Moses came down and looked at Aaron, who was the interim pastor, so to speak, <laughs> Uh, while Moses was gone, Aaron was in charge, and he said, what, what in the world? He said, well, I mean, the people gave me all this gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. Imagine that. Just flippant about the whole situation, as though God's reputation didn't matter. They needed a mediator, thirdly, because God is faithful. And part of his faithfulness has to do with his following through on what he has said he will do. They needed someone to stand between them and God. God had said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. God is faithful when he's blessing us, and he is faithful when he is bringing to bear the consequences of our disobedience. They needed a mediator. And they needed a mediator because in the final outcome, God is compassionate. And they didn't deserve that. And so Moses stands between them. You know what's interesting to me? Verse 14, it says this, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And some people, especially critics of the Bible, look at that, oh, well, see, God changed his mind. He did, he's going to do one thing, now he changed his mind, he's going to do something else. Is that what this is talking about? See, I think if God had genuinely intended, these people have done it, I'm killing them, that's it, I'm wiping them out. Why would he have told Moses about it first? What was that point for? Why did he say, stand out of my way, let me alone? Moses is with God. We'll find out in the next chapter that Moses had a relationship with God unlike anyone else. They spoke as friend to friend. And Moses is with God, and God says, leave me alone. I'm going to go down and do this. When God says, when God does something, he doesn't usually announce it first. He doesn't always, unless it's prophetic. <laughs> he just does what he does, because he is God. I think, 
He's giving Moses the opportunity to intercede. Leave me alone so that my wrath may burn hot. It wasn't yet. Leave me alone so that I can consume them. He hadn't done that yet. God was not out of control here. God was saying to Moses, these people deserve my judgment fully and forcefully. You're standing here. If you step out of the way, I'm going down there and I'm going to do this. Moses is between God and the people, and God says, if you move, I will go down and do this. And Moses interceded for them. He became a mediator and spoke to God on behalf of the people, though they did not even know for themselves to do that yet. So God did not destroy them. Now, if you want part of the technical answer, the word relent here doesn't necessarily have to mean he changed his mind. It also refers to having compassion, to be moved to pity. And as Moses speaks to them and finishes interceding for them, the Lord is moved to pity and compassion. Why? Because Moses had spoken of the character of God, of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his kindness, of his workings on behalf of his people, of his promise to his people about this land that they were headed to. Moses is speaking all of these things that are true facts about the character of God. And it gives God the opportunity to hear exactly what he wanted to hear. The one who is standing in the gap for these people knows everything exactly as it is. And he is interceding for them. That was God's desire all, his long, all along. He has always wanted people to repent. It is never God's desire to destroy people. In fact, there's another verse in Psalm 106 here. I think it's up here. Um, he said he would not destroy them, or that he would, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in his path, in the path of between God and the Israelites as a mediator. Now, if you've been around the family of God very long, I know your mind is going to Jesus, right? Because he is our mediator. He is our greater Moses who stood between us and God, literally hung between us and God on a cross. So what about our need of a mediator? I mean, it's important to see the Israelites. It's important to see how they function and, and what they do and, and how we can learn lessons from where they are. But, man, we need a mediator too, right? This, this chapter reminds me of how impressive it is. We need a mediator because we're lost in our sin. And I have the wrong verse on the screen, so thank you anyway. It's Romans 3.23, which says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. We are the Israelites. We are the people who don't always trust. We are the people who struggle with being impatient and not trusting what God has said. We are the people who disobey what he has told us. We are the people who distort what he has said and make gods of our own initiative. Right? We're the people who deserve judgment from God. That's us. That's every single one of us. We all stand under his judgment. That's Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is death. 
It sounds somehow more violent when God says, let me go down and consume them. <laughs> but it's the same thing. I didn't even talk about what a man of integrity Moses was, because God said, you stay here, I'm going to go down and wipe them out, and I'll start again with you. That's a pretty heady offer. <laughs> but Moses is a man of integrity. God hates sin. I'm moving on. Let me, I'm on three. I should be. Let's see. There we go. Our need of a mediator. Um, we are lost in our sin. That's Romans 3.23. Um, we stand under God's judgment is Romans 6.23. And Jesus stands between us and God. Last week, one of the articles of uh, furniture in the tabernacle was the ark, the ark of the covenant. In it would be housed the tablets, the tables of the Ten Commandments, which it took them about two months to break. Probably happened sooner than that in their heart, but to actively do it, it took them about two months. And they eventually kept a copy of those tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. And it is said that that's where God would come and meet with his people. And what was between the Ark of the Covenant and God who would come and meet with them? was called the mercy seat, the seat of propitiation, which when you get to 1 John chapter 4 is describing Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sin. So, so Jesus stands between us and God. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is God's anger being satisfied, God's wrath being satisfied that is important, and Jesus accomplished that when he died on the cross and paid for our sins. The message of the gospel, this is what one author says, is that God has given us a mediator. When he saw our sin, he wanted to save us, so he sent his son to intercede for our salvation. The scripture says what? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's as if, this writer goes on to say, God said, go down, Jesus, go down, your people, the ones you will become one of, have become corrupt. Just like he said to Moses, they're living in sin. They've turned from my law to worship other gods, and unless you step in as their mediator, they will be destroyed by my wrath. We need a mediator as much as the Israelites did. We're not dancing around a golden calf or anything, but we surely have dishonored the Lord, have disobeyed God, have refused to trust in what he has said to us and what he has told us to do. So there's a couple of thoughts for you to take with you as you go there. I wonder, and you would be the only one to know this, if there are sinful patterns of behavior that you're, you're tolerating in your own heart, right? The psalmist at one point, as he's praying, is thanking God for his faithfulness, and he says, if I had regarded sin in my heart, iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. It's like he has this realization that if I'm going to be uh, unfaithful in some way to God, he's not even going to listen to me when I pray. It is serious business to follow after the Lord. And man, these are great opportunities for us to go back and remember and talk to the Lord and uh, make sure we've got short accounts on the stuff we may be tolerating that uh, we shouldn't be.
have you forgotten what God has done for you? That, that's, to me, this reminder is really, really important. It's easy to forget the Lord, and we can easily forget the Lord when we're in a really hard time, and we can easily forget the Lord when things are going great, right? Because it just seems like everything's fine. Why do I need to be dependent on God? There's that happy medium where things are like, yeah, it's fine, everything's good, whatever, you know, that's, that's where I find it easiest to remember the Lord, because I'm not scrambling in the middle of difficulty or scrambling because I'm trying to keep all the plates spinning. We, don't, we cannot afford to forget what God has done. It's important for us to go back, and that's what in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is writing about this, he says, go back and remember these things that the Israelites experienced were for you so you could remember. That's what these kind of sermons are for. That's what these kind of chapters of Scripture are for, not just to remind us of a great story, but to remind us of God's faithfulness. And then lastly, I don't know, I never know. I never know if somebody's going to watch this video later on the, on the uh, uh, lives, or maybe on the live stream, but on the Facebook page, or maybe someone buddy has come and Man, you've never just finally come to the point where you've said, I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to believe in the gospel, and I'm going to receive Christ. That's what this is about, right? We all need a mediator. The ground is level at the cross. We all come desperately needing a mediator. I may not be the worst sinner on the planet, but that's only because I'm comparing myself to the worst sinners on the planet, right? There's always somebody worse than me. I never look the other direction. There's always somebody better than me, but that doesn't matter either because they are also a sinner because Romans 3.23, all have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. They exchange the glory of God, Exodus 32, uh, quoted in rather in Psalm 106 for an image. Romans 1 said the same thing. That's what we do. We exchange God's glory for an image because we can contain an image. I have to honor the glory of God, and I have fallen short of that. That means I'm a sinner. Every one of us is. And once I recognize that, I can turn from my sin. I can believe in the gospel, which is Jesus is God, come in the flesh, our mediator. Jesus died for our sin. Jesus was buried, and he literally came back to life again. We'll celebrate that in, man, sooner than we expect at Easter, right? I return from my sin, I believe in the gospel, I receive Christ. And when I do that, my mediator has done his work, and I am now in right standing before God. It's incredible. So we're going to close here in just a minute, and uh, I, I think there probably are people coming up front, at least, uh, at least somebody, but you can come uh, talk to whoever's up front. There you go, Clifton's coming. And, and uh, man, if you want to talk to somebody, pray with them about anything, whatever it is, please do that. Or after the service, you want to grab Pastor Mike or myself or Nathan or one of these ladies uh, or Clifton. If you've never trusted Christ, man, let's take care of that today. Let's get that resolved. Let your mediator, he's done his job. Let's get you uh, where you need to be. All right, listen, let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, I, uh, I really do find my heart sympathetic, not sympathetic toward the Israelites, but identifying with them anyway. I, I can quickly and easily slip away from where I should be 
And uh, so, Father, I pray that you'd remind us of that this morning. Thank you for Jesus who stood in our place, who took our sin, who paid the penalty. And Lord, I know that now when you look at me in Christ, you see me as righteous. That's a constant amazement to me. So Lord, help me never forget what you've done so that I turn in my behaviors in ways that would not honor you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.